right. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is episode 10 of American Redemption. As always, I'm on with Stephen, and our guest today is named Dan. He is a, a, a physicist and a student of philosophy and theology as well, a very smart guy. And today, the topic is scientism. We're going to be talking about what it is and what the correct take on science is. The, the motivation for this episode is that we have seen the left take the totally wrong stance with science. They say ridiculous things like, like, I believe in science and trust the science and science is just a process. It's not something you can believe in. And then the right has overreacted and they are saying things like science is gay. We don't need science. And I think both viewpoints are, are ridiculous, maybe equally. So, so we're here with Dan and he will be breaking this down for us. Dan, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. So to start off, why don't we talk a little bit about how the philosophy of science has, has changed over time. Uh, some consider Aristotle the first scientist, and that lasted for, you know, his school lasted for a couple thousand years, and then everything changed with, with Bacon. Yes. That's my understanding, at least. So it's, it's very interesting. So there's actually a wonderful book that I was reading this year called the Metaphysical Foundations of Modern Science by E.A. Burt, who was a philosopher in the early 20th century. And what he was doing was what you were saying just there is tracing the metaphysical and philosophical assumptions that undergird modern science, essentially. And at the beginning, he's laying out the the status of you know, science and philosophy as it was before what we consider the modern era. So that would be before the 1600s, essentially. So we have the, the ancients and the medievals. They would be considered pre-modern. And then everything with the Enlightenment, that was the beginning, usually what people consider of modernity. But he distinguishes very clearly the ancient and medieval view of nature in the world versus the modern view of it. And what was critical for the the ancients and the medievals, going back to Aristotle, was this view of nature as filled with purposes. Right. Things were about certain things. Teleology. Teleology. So that's the teleology is the idea that things inherently have uh, a purpose or direction in uh, built into them. The eyeball is intrinsically by its nature, by its construction for, you know, bio, its biological considerations about seeing. It points mm. towards the end of seeing. Uh, you can also think of an acorn. An acorn is pointed towards the end of growing into an oak tree as opposed to some other kind of tree. Hmm. And there's even teleology of a different sort, which is, you know, that's, that's like intrinsic, that's built into a thing. But there's also extrinsic teleology, which might be more familiar to people where uh, that's something that is imposed from the outside. So for example, you take a piece of wood, you shape it a certain way, you put a shaped piece of metal on the end of it, and you use it as a hammer. Now, the point of that hammer, as you would use it is for hammering and nails for hitting things. Now that's imposed by you on its own. It's just a piece of metal and a piece of wood. It's not intrinsically about hammering nails, but you've imposed that from Mm. the outside. So there's these two uh, basic kinds of teleology. There's intrinsic, which is built into it according to the thing's nature. And then there's extrinsic, which is imposed from the outside. Um, But yeah, that was, the, the ancient and medieval, you know, if you want to call it scientific view of the world was looking at things in terms of what they did and what they were for. And he has a, let's see, he's got a wonderful line in here. This view underlay medieval physics. The entire world of nature was held not only to exist for man's sake, but to be likewise immediately present and fully intelligible to his mind. Hence, the categories in terms of which he inter- uh, it was interpreted 
were not those of time, space, mass, energy, and the like, but substance, essence, matter, form, quality, quantity, categories developed in the attempt to throw into scientific form the facts and relations observed in man's unaided sense experience of the world and the main uses which he made it serve. So, you know, the view was man was in some place at this key central location in the cosmos. You know, the world was his domain. Things existed for his benefit and that he could understand. Knowledge was something that he was actively seeking. You know, the world was passive and receptive to his, uh, his inquiries into it. He could actually go out and actively study it and it was intelligible all the way down. There was nothing about it that was in principle you know, beyond his, you know, or nothing in principle irrational about it because God as the ultimate source of things was pure intelligibility. God was intelligible and being the foundation of all reality, that meant that all of reality was intelligible as well. So that's the, that's the core of the ancient and medieval view of science. The transition to the moderns view of science was very different or, you know, or the, the views that they took was, you know, was very different. And it's really, you know, I would say you're uh, correct to bring up Bacon because he was a proponent essentially of empiricism. And that's kind of what's at the core of modern science is empirical observation. And uh, it also goes back to the British philosophers who were under the school of what's called positivism, where we can't know what things are about essentially without going out and making observations. And we go out and make these observations about the world. And from these observations, we put together theories or explanations, or we, you know, we take from these observations descriptions of how the world behaves. And we use those to construct models and to understand and, or, or to make predictions of how things are going to behave in the future. And we can't know the natures of things, you know, the way the ancients and medievals did, where they look at a thing and say, ah, this is about this, this points towards this, this thing is for this thing. There's something in its nature that we can grasp. The, the British empiricists and positivists who were big proponents of what became, you know, modern scientific thought said that, well, really, you know, you, you can't know that because you might observe something today and observe something totally different mm -hmm. tomorrow. And so you're, you, there's this constant need to make observations. And so you can't really know the natures of things. We have to be constantly making observations about the world. We have to uh, uh, look at everything through this empirical lens of gathering information in that way. And we want to minimize, you know, the what they would call the rational uh the rationalist considerations where they they thought you know there was there's a, a great debate in modern philosophy between the rationalists and the empiricists and they're they're interestingly both related but that's uh sort of a topic for another day but uh they were they basically took like they took the the medieval philosophy and sort of split it into two halves because the, the medieval philosophy and the, and the ancients, their science said that there's rational considerations, things that you can know, like mathematics, uh, on your own, just by sort of thinking from the armchair, you can deduce these things. Mm. But there's also empirical things about the world that you can only know by going out there and seeing them. And though they had this wonderful unity in the medieval worldview, but modernity kind of split those two in half where there's, there's sort of this false choice of either everything is purely rational where you can just deduce the workings of the universe from the armchair or everything is empirical where there's nothing outside of empirical observation. Um, and generally the empiricists sort of won out in the, uh, 
the popular view of science because you know it's it's difficult to do science without observations that's one of the key things about science uh or at least in the modern view of it so the but empiricist um, would uh would look at your, the eyeball and say the eyeball can see but that's not not necessarily what it's for exactly there's okay. one of the important things in modern scientific philosophy the mechanical philosophy is what it was called is a denial of any kind of intrinsic teleology in nature your example is absolutely correct so the eyeball is this collection of matter that takes that you know light shines into it stimulates things on the retina and then sends some impulse out of it and that's all it does it's just this collection of matter that has this certain chain of cause and effect going through it but it's not about seeing it just is this lump of matter that does these things with that example it, it seems kind of silly you know like what else mm -hmm. would it be for and i guess that's the separation when mm -hmm. you took rationalism out of it it does seem kind of silly yeah it, it's it's more the what happened was and what bert also talks about in the book is the reason this shift occurred, it's not like they just woke up one day and said, oh, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to ignore teleology. I'm going to ignore intrinsic purpose in the natural world. What happened was it was a, in part, a reaction to the medieval philosophy gradually over time. And also the discovery of the power of mathematical methods. So beginning with people like Copernicus and Galileo, who made these observations about the world and then saw that there were mathematical ways of relating these observations. So famously, they're observing the sky and they're observing the motions of the planets and they're finding that, well, hold on, these aren't just random motions. These aren't just, you know, bland, you know, stars just moving across the sky. There's interesting patterns there and they seem to obey these wonderful mathematical relations. And then you have, you know, that sort of is symbolized in Galileo's famous description as, or uh, description of, uh, or he characterized the book of nature as being written in the language of mathematics. So there's this great emphasis that, oh, we found this wonderful tool, mathematics, that allows us to, you know, deeply penetrate with our mind the patterns that we see in nature and make them regular. It brings them into our intellect in a way that we weren't really able to before by ignoring it. So it's this very, very deeply penetrating view. Now, the temptation that comes with that is, oh, well, what if, what if this is all there is to nature? What if all there is are these mathematical properties? This gives us such a deeply penetrating view. What if that's just you know, the nature of the world? I mean, that's, that's something that even goes back to like the Greeks with Pythagoras, who said that the world was just numbers. You know, in some way, everything came down to mathematics, and that also you know, partly relates to Plato's characterization of the world as you know, being these imperfect instantiations of the abstract forms. You know, the, the forms are more real than the world, and you know, for Pythagoras, numbers and mathematics, they're more real than uh, the concrete reality. So it really just, it must be that mathematics just sort of is reality then. And that echoed down into the early moderns who were, you know, seeing the power that mathematics had when applied to physics and applied to the study of nature. And they said, well, maybe this is all there is to matter. And that then spirals into the later philosophers and empiricists like uh, Descartes, or I guess Descartes was more of a rationalist, but the other modern philosophers like Descartes and Boyle and other people like Hobbes, where they were sort of playing out the consequences of this idea that everything is just mathematical. And part of this focus on just the mathematical elements of the world means I'm going to exclude everything that isn't mathematical. You know, they said, oh, wow, this, math this mathematics is so powerful at you know, relating these things in nature, then 
it's the only stuff I'm going to care about. I'm going to exclude anything that's qualitative, like the way the color red appears to your senses. I don't care about the qualitative experience of the color red. I just care about something like the wavelength of red light. So anything about the subjective experience we push to the side, anything that's also qualitative like purposes, I'm going to ignore. Like you said, with the example of the eyeball, I'm just going to describe the eye in terms of essentially the motion and uh, behavior of its parts. And I'm not going to think about it in terms of some sort of macroscopic view, which is, oh, well, what is it for? What mm -hmm. is it used for in the organism? It just is matter that does this. And I can describe the way it does that mathematically. And then that gets you basically to the beginnings of scientism there, where this, this method that you've committed yourself to, which is I'm only going to focus on mathematical elements of the world to the exclusion of qualitative things and things like teleology. I'm going to focus on these things. Um, and I'm also going to say that the, the only things that are real about the world are those that obey prediction and control. Because that's another big thing about modern empirical science is that it works with the idea of prediction. I can test to see if, a, if an idea is true mm -hmm. by saying, well, if this idea were true, it would entail that this happens in this circumstance. And I say, okay, well, let's test that. We bring about these circumstances and we see if that thing happens. If it does, you know, so the scientific method would say, oh, that, you know, that either confirms our hypothesis or it gives evidence for our hypothesis. And that's the, so there's this great emphasis in modern empirical science on prediction. You know, that's something that really is at the heart of, of experimental physics and theoretical physics, uh, in my own experience. It's this, uh, this tremendous focus on being able to predict things. And there are impressive things that you can do by focusing on just the predictive aspects of the world. You know, there are wonderful uh, results that we have that have the numerical values of certain physical constants they predict to many, many decimal places, and they do an experiment, and they find that it agrees with them up to those uh, very many decimal places. Richard Feynman characterized one observation as, you know, like uh, predicting the length, predicting the distance between Los Angeles to New York uh, within a hair's width. So that's that's the error on the measurement. That's how precise they were being, and you can do those kinds of things by focusing on just those aspects of the world that are susceptible to prediction. Now, the, the ancients and the medievals seeing this would respond that, well, not everything about the world is susceptible to prediction and control. So this focus there is, ex is inherently excluding aspects of the world that are not susceptible to that. So for mm -hmm. example, you know, to use an example that even modern scientists would agree with, there's mathematics. Results in mathematics are not found by prediction. You don't predict and say, well, I think that the, you know, the Riemann hypothesis is going to be true. That's not how it works. There's, you know, the hypothesis is there. And then we show by purely rational means, by thinking about it, by, uh, uh, diving into the concepts by doing no experiments, we think and see whether or not it's true. We work through the proof that way. So already we have an example from mathematics of aspects of the world that are not, you know, we find out things are true or false in that, not by experiment, not by prediction, but by rational inquiry. And that's something that's really at the core of scientism, is that it's basically expanding the that concept in empirical science where it says, I only want to focus on things that I can predict and that I can describe mathematically. It's saying, well, what if anything that could be known, anything in principle that could be known is knowledge of this type that you can only get by uh, empirical experiment and that is susceptible to rational or, or that is susceptible to uh, 
prediction and control. It's saying that's what truth and knowledge is. It's not, it is all of this kind. And that's really what the, the, the definition of scientism is, is that all knowledge is, is modern empirical scientific knowledge. Okay, yeah. And that's, when you break that down, it, it's ridiculous because that, this is a point you've made to me before, that uh, claim cannot be proven empirically. And then, of it's, course, that rejects a, math, too. Yep. It's a statement about truth per se. And let's say, let's say it was true. Well, if it was true, it's not true by virtue of its own definition of truth. And so it's viciously undermining itself. It's not you wouldn't know that such a thing is true by doing an experiment to test it. It's a philosophical claim. And so it's already you know, like I said, it's, it's self-undermining. Now, suppose you wanted to avoid this self-undermining definition of scientism where you say, well, you know, what if, you know, philosophy then really is just part of empirical science? You know, we're including it in that. We're including everything that's proving us wrong, essentially, under the definition of scientism. Well, two problems with that. One, you're including in the definition stuff that your original definition was meant to you know, counteract, basically, you know, the original definition of scientism was to be in opposition to philosophy. So if you then say that philosophy is just a part of science, then, you know, your original definition is, is contradicted there. But the other thing is that in order to make your definition true, where, you know, all knowledge is scientific knowledge, you're basically expanding it to the point where anything is considered science and then it just becomes trivially true. You know, all knowledge is scientific knowledge, whereby scientific knowledge, we mean anything. You know, it's Any interesting. Gender? I think mm -hmm. it kind of seems to me that um, certain fields of scientists are more into scientism. I think biologists tend to be very into scientism. And I have this view that physicists, physicists are not. Then I often see physicists um, as being interested in philosophy um, and I think maybe that has to do with their grounding in, in mathematics. They use a rational side as well as experimental empiricism. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Have you noticed um, if, if physicists are less into scientism? I, at least in my own experience, I've definitely seen more physicists be interested in philosophy and mathematicians. But I would say really where scientism is often strongest is in people like physicists. Hmm. It's like they're, they're the, they're sort of the, the, they represent both extremes because one of the, you know, one of the tenets of scientism then is that if all knowledge is this, you know, em empirical scientific knowledge put in the language of mathematics, then physics is sort of the paradigm of knowledge. Then hmm. it's purely mathematical. We're not appealing to anything we're not appealing to, you know, complex biological systems. We're saying, well, really, these biological systems, because they're made up of these parts, and these parts uh, can be described mathematically by physics. Really, it's just physics, and that's why you know, scientism uh, often births reductionism, where it says, really, there's nothing in the science of biology that is not ultimately physics. There's no, there's no kind, there's no knowledge that's macroscopic to physics. It's all fundamental particle physics just in these complicated forms. But you know, I, there are, um, like I said, so that's one extreme that I see in physicists, this extreme adherence to scientism. But also I've seen uh, physicists who are uh, philosophically oriented and you know, are, they, do, they do deeply care about the problems that seem to be there in the you know, the modern scientific, the, the philosophical assumptions that undergird a lot of what the, the popular scientific worldview is. You know, one example is physicist Lee Smolin. He wrote a book called, I think it's called Time Reborn, where he was critical of the way modern physicists tend to regard time as something unreal. And he says part of the reason for that is the way time is treated mathematically in physics, it becomes, you know, it's, it's treated like a dimension. It's treated like some kind of eternal, you know, timeless, for lack of a better word, thing. 
and uh, you know, there's famously uh, things uh, in physical theories that you know, they're they're sort of symmetric in time. It doesn't make a difference if you play it forwards or backwards. And there are other things like uh, interpretations of general relativity that says, well, really, there's no time, there's no change. There's this whole like four-dimensional block universe existing all at once. And so there's this tendency um, among physicists to treat the, you know, the, the, they read out of the mathematical results some sort of philosophical view of time this, or some metaphysics about time. And they say, oh, well, time really must not exist because time seems to vanish into eternity uh, when we look at these equations here. And Lee Smolin said, well, hold on. You're reading into these results certain assumptions about time. You know, for example, that what we're seeing in the mathematics is an exhaustive description of time. But you know, that's an assumption that you're reading, you're reading into it and then consequently reading out of it when you get further results from that. And so he's uh, one person who's very critical of the way that time has been treated in physics. Uh, and then you have other people like, um, you know, who are not necessarily physicists, um, people like Thomas Nagel, John Searle, uh, Saul Kripke, who were, you know, they were naturalists. So they're, you know, they're, you know, I think all three of them were atheists. And they were, you know, several of them were scientists. I think Tom, or, or, you know, I think John Searle was himself a computer scientist, but I could be wrong about that. But he wrote heavily about computer science and philosophy of mind. But these were other people who were, you know, they were uh, of a more you know, naturalistic mindset, but they were critical of the philosophical assumptions that were coming into modern science. They were saying that, well, hold on, you're bringing these assumptions in that entail things that contradict stuff in our experience. You know, that uh, you know, Searle was famously, uh, and I believe he's still alive, uh, he was famously critical of the idea that we could genuinely create real artificial intelligence that was like a you know a real genuine artificial mind and he said well you know the 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 you're reading into this all these assumptions about uh the human mind and and he has these several arguments one of them is his famous chinese room argument that he's you know showing to say these are there are problems in this view of matter and nature that we have here that are a result of these unquestioned assumptions that we are just bringing into science. And I think I got a little bit off topic because we were talking about physicists. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, um, I guess to answer your original question, I've seen both extremes in physics where there have been extreme scientism, but also uh, attempts to break out of the, the scientism mold that uh, modern thought seems to be stuck in. Interesting. So from all this scientism, now we've arrived at a point where we have a lot of people making like silly comments, like I believe in science and, mm -hmm. you know, trust the science with the pandemic and everything. But we've also have some much more dangerous ideas with people like Sam Harris mm -hmm. making the claim that, that you can determine, uh, you can make moral judgments using science, mm -hmm. which the implications of that are, are pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so an interesting remedy to this comes from someone who you know is in a, a very interesting position. There was this wonderful philosopher of science named Paul Fierabend, and he was a man of the left, more of a classical liberal himself, like a million liberal type, and he was very critical of the what he thought was the hegemony that science had over uh, the world. He was very provocative in that way. He, uh, even though he disagreed with creationists and astrologists, he went to bat for them because what he thought uh, was going on in modern science was basically this hegemony and dogmatism because sort of like, as I said, we have generations of scientists just sort of inheriting these philosophical assumptions unconsciously 
from their previous generations because they've never engaged with philosophy. And so they, they think of science as if it's this sort of neutral background to the world. And it's, it can't be questioned in that way because it's this neutral background, despite the fact that doing science involves all different kinds of uh, philosophical assumptions and, and uh, thought that is not just bland algorithms of like, you know, plug this in and get out some result. It's it, science is not some uh, impartial arbiter of truth that's above and beyond its the people who do it. So, um, and Fiera Bend uh, was very critical of people holding this view. And he uh, was, uh, and so he uh, tended to see that people dismissed things like astrology and creationism, not because they were uh, diving into the arguments there, seeing what people were actually believing there and trying to understand them and respond to them. Often what they did was simply, you know, use, the use their scientific authority as a reason to just dismiss them. And he, let me see, he cited an example. I pulled this up. He, oh yeah, he thought it was ridiculous how there was this group of 180 something scientists that included uh, Nobel laureates who signed this document in the, I think the eighties that they were denouncing uh, astrology then. And he said, well, this is just, this is just full of crap because they're not actively seeking to understand these ideas there. They're not really getting into the nitty gritty of, of the, the debate between ideas. They're just sort of sitting back and, you know, writing this dismissal purely on the basis of their authority. And he also thinks it's kind of, you know, it's, it's ludicrous how there are these people who think that, well, you know, by me being an art, uh, uh, a priest of science, essentially, and because science is this neutral background arbiter of life, then you know that gives me this authority to speak out about things. You know, it's it's unquestioned, and uh, and so that's the the danger that he was uh, highly critical of. He's got this famous book called Against Method. So you know, if any if any of your listeners are ever curious in that, he has this wonderful book called Against Method. And another article called, let me see, another book called Science in a Free Society. Oh, yes. And there's this one wonderful article I was reading before this called How to Defend Society Against Science. So that's a wonderful thing to read. And it really uh, sums up his view there better than really I could in the short amount of time. Um, but what was your question again? Um, I guess I want to talk about how we're seeing this manifest today during the pandemic. Oh yeah. And so, you know, that these ideas tie in directly into this because what we turn to in this medical crisis was medical experts. And it's not, you know, we're not foolish for doing so, you know, when, when there's a problem, you go to somebody who, you know, has some kind of, experience with the subject that that problem entails. So that's not the problem there. The problem is this view that you know, we inherit from this idea of science as this neutral background that is untainted by philosophical assumptions, even though it's, you know, it's resting on philosophical assumptions. It's, you know, we're, uh, we're treating science then as, uh, as if it's infallible, essentially. These experts are the only people who can have any say on this whatsoever, and their proclamations on the subject are infallible. And so it's not that we're looking at scientists who are just like us, capable of error, and that are using models that capture certain aspects of the world, but not everything, and that give us valuable insights, but maybe not tell us the whole story. You know, we're, we're exchanging that view for essentially the the deified view of Dr. Fauci that seems to be prevalent in uh, the mainstream media and the uh, wider uh, you know, popular culture, where these are people who are, you know, their ultimate saviors, because they are the ones, unlike everybody else, 
who is sticking to the methods of the power of science, which is infallible, and they, by proxy, are infallible as well. And so that's the, that's the one danger there. So it's this, uh, this idea that uh, science is infallible, and therefore any expert then is also infallible. Mm. Well, that's not at all the case. I can tell you, first of all, that you know, scientists are people just like anybody else. They, and as I was mentioning before, one of the big things is that scientists use models. You're trying to capture some aspect of the world to understand it better, and so you represent it with a model. And that model is an abstraction. It excludes things that it doesn't want to focus on and just focuses on this one aspect. Now, already there, it's excluding information about the world. But also, the model itself can be imperfect. It captures it well, but not perfectly. Yeah, so, so you introduce a lot of errors that you don't account for. Yeah, typically those are called systematic errors when we mm. do stuff in physics where there are errors that are introduced based on your choice of model. And that's why you do systematic analysis too where you see how those kinds of choices affect your error. But it's also um, uh, a good analogy that was brought up in this one article I was reading is, you know, in the same way that scientists are focusing on these models to the exclusion of other things because they want to focus on this one aspect of the world, focusing on just what the scientists themselves are doing is similar, where, um, you know, the, uh, the writer of the article used the analogy of suppose in a given situation, we only, you know, some political situation, <clears throat> excuse me, we only listen to what the military experts had to say. Now, they would give us wonderful insights into the, you know, the military aspects of this combat, uh, the you know, defense aspects of this, how we would be able to you know, attack whatever enemy this is, resources in, in regards to war and things like that. And that would be great, but we'd only be seeing this from that perspective, only considerations that are within the domain of, of military of the military there, we wouldn't be seeing other things. And so similarly, if we, you know, if, you know for example, you know, the, the military expert might be all for war because he says, oh, we could easily conquer this foe, but perhaps ethical considerations outside of that uh, might be saying, well, it's probably not a good idea to go to war, but this is a consideration outside of the military realm. Mm. And so similarly here, the expert in science is giving you, or whatever scientific field this is, is giving you insights. They're giving you the things that they can see from their perspective. That's inherently not the whole view. It's just part of the view. And so, like any decision, it's information that you have to consider, but also in the light of other considerations. The big thing with COVID was we saw how, uh, in response to what we you know, understood at any given moment in time were the, the effects of the disease. We responded to that by draconian lockdown measures because we said, well, it stops people from dying of COVID because we see the evidence here that says, you know, if they're not out there getting exposed to COVID, then they're not going to get COVID and hence they're not going to die of COVID. You know, it's a grand simplification, but that's what is at the, the core of the idea. Well, we see a, from you know, lots of evidence coming out since, which you know, many people could have predicted that such measures didn't really seem to do all that much for actually stopping COVID in certain circumstances. Not to say they didn't do anything. In certain circumstances, a lockdown seemed to work, but in other places, it didn't seem to work. So it wasn't this foolproof method. The other thing is that if we only saw this from the perspective of COVID, we end up with a situation where we're you know, out of the frying pan into the fire suicides increased as a result of the lockdowns and you know, that great tragedy because we locked people away in their homes. We didn't make psychological considerations or social considerations. Man is a social creature. And so simply disregarding anything about his need for social contact there, yeah, he might not be dying of COVID, but he's dying at his own hand because he's horribly depressed because all of his social contacts are gone. But if all the people care about is, well, he's not dying of COVID. Well, I guess you don't really care about the 
the life of that person then, because if you care about the life of that person, you would weigh these other considerations and say, if he's not dying of this, he might be dying of something else. So we want him to die not of anything. We want him to live. So we can't just be going off of what this narrow perspective says. We have to weigh these other considerations. Right. And so the left, they don't see that scientists can be wrong. You know, they think they're infallible. The right recognized this immediately after like the lockdowns. So a lot of every, I think everyone was willing to, to stay home for the first couple of weeks. And we were listening to what uh, the scientists were saying. And then it became apparent that they, they were wrong on some points. And then as the pandemic went on, we saw that, okay, not only are they capable of being wrong, they are also capable of being corrupt. These, mm-hmm. these scientists in many cases are just straight up lying or they're obscuring mm-hmm. information and they're doing this because of money or mm-hmm. maybe they're just bad. And this is what really drove people away. And they said, I don't care what the actual science says. They don't even know that the actual science is actually on our side. Mm-hmm. They said, these scientists, these, this Tony Fauci guy and these people, the New York times, they're like, they're stupid nerds. So we don't need science anymore. Mm-hmm. We hate science. And that's an overreaction, mm-hmm. but I don't blame them for it. Yeah. It's, it's one, you know, extremes tend to encourage each other. You could see that in the, the movement that brought about the, uh, uh, the prohibition amendment where drunkenness, you know, one extreme fostered the other extreme, which was, you know, teetotaling to the point, you know, the, the one that said that alcohol is just bad in and of itself. And then you see the, the consequence of that reaction in an amendment that banned alcohol. So you can see how these extremes play upon each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see that in your life where if somebody takes one extreme position, that tends to bring out the extreme, the opposite extreme position in uh, whoever disagrees with them. Um, and, you know, that will we see that here in this case, too, where the left muddies the waters enough on scientific matters that it becomes difficult for the average person who is not well versed in these things to distinguish fact from fiction, essentially, and then trapped in this limbo where I can't get a square or a straight answer. I'm just going to abandon the whole project entirely because you know, nothing, you know, nothing is making sense to me here. This person says this, that person says that. I can't get anything useful. I'm just going to ignore all of it because that's the one sure thing that I can do is just ignore it all. Yeah. So what do you think like the average everyday person who's not a scientist, how should they look at science? How should they look at experts? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I was, I had mentioned this before where you weigh it as a consideration among many considerations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a wonderful, we can pull wonderful examples from Catholic social teaching, for example. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, reading several things in in regards to COVID and in regards to uh, stuff like this, where um, parts of Catholic social teaching are uh, they they talk about how if you're in you know someone is facing a medical crisis of some kind, and you know it is it is good for them to pursue uh, medical treatment for these things. Um, but no one, you know, they're not, they can't be forced to do so beyond the, you know, like reasonable limits where, you know, if somebody, uh, I wish I read more about this because it's a, an excellent response to this question. Um, you know, if somebody is weighing considerations about, for example, getting some disease treated, it's a genuine consideration when thinking about getting treatment for something is what are the impacts it's going to have on other areas of my life. This treatment might work, but it might be expensive beyond my ability to pay, or it might be so disruptive to the rest of my life that pursuing it actually degrades the quality of my life as a whole. And so, you know, we, we take this view then that's, that says what the science is saying is a consideration. And we have to weigh that with other considerations as well, moral, personal considerations, stuff yes. like that. Yeah, I and, agree. 
And I think the way that ends up looking is, you know, for the most part, you just sort of turn off your turn your attention away from mainstream media, because you know, when you're when you're plugged into the media, when you're plugged into the popular culture, it's difficult to weigh things appropriately. You know, the the screaming people on TV essentially want want you to weigh them a certain way, where which is weigh this entirely and don't consider anything else. But you know what you're need to unplug, I would say, first of all, from the people driving you to one extreme. Because once that's done, I, I see that many people make much clearer headed decisions, you know, when just focusing on these things in, uh, you know, ignoring what, you know, peer pressure might be saying. You know, my mom is a nurse practitioner. And uh, one of the things she's doing now actually is a, uh, uh, helping employees where she works with uh, navigating their uh, uh, COVID exposure procedure. And she is absolutely in agreement with the stuff that we've said here, where these experts are you know, overweighing medical considerations you know, or, you know, they're, or they're making medical considerations the only consideration She's saying, no, it, it can be, you know, COVID can be serious for different groups, but it can also be not serious for other groups, different mm -hmm. demographics, like children we've seen, it doesn't really seem to be all that dangerous for barring certain conditions, but it seems to be very dangerous for people who are in a certain age range or with different medical conditions. And so she's navigating uh, COVID problems with employees with that level headedness of we're going to weigh everything. We're going to say what are the actual dangers that are faced, but what are what are your particular life circumstances? I encourage you to get the vaccine, she'll say, but it's ultimately your choice. You might be in a, a certain group that's at risk. You might be in a group that's not at that much risk. But here are just the basic facts, and I leave them. You know, I can I can give you some recommendations, but I leave them to you to weigh this information. So she's approaching it in the way that I would recommend people do it. Just level-headed and uh, you know calmly unplug yourself from the mainstream true yeah, yeah great point about uh unplugging from the mainstream because they bring people on who get you all riled up they speak for yeah. in these sound bites and they say something outrageous and something dramatic instead go listen to dr robert malone he was on on joe rogan the other day he spent three hours there explaining everything in detail but in a way that would make sense to your average person. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a good time for, uh, for Steven to come up with some of his questions, Steven. Uh, um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say, I really liked how uh, you approached that. there, talking about how it's, we tend to boil things down to uh, kind of a binary choice or a black and white situation. And there's definitely a lot more, uh, more, uh, gray area and people do need to consider weighing their options. Yeah, it it's it's the the problem is a problem of extremes as it usually is where it's this hyper focus on one aspect something aspect of something because we have you know we're we're people we're emotional creatures we get tunnel vision especially in stressful situations it's difficult to get the right you know distant and dispassionate enough perspective where you're able to look at things as separate elements of a broad problem. And that's, you know, I, I, as, a, as a general procedure, which is just calming down and taking a step back, that seems to be a good rule of thumb for approaching any kind of crisis situation like this. Yeah, so uh, I guess... I'm going to kind of play a little bit of uh, devil's advocate here and ask mm -hmm. you a couple of uh, uh, questions. Okay. Uh, I said, uh, many of us who are not in scientific fields have become a bit skeptical of the field in the past couple of, of years as we started to, to go into. And I know my background is in the financial space. And obviously, there's been plenty of stories with people of bad intentions and poor actors in the uh, financial uh, 
space in our society. Mm -hmm. So uh, would you say, is this equally uh, true amongst uh, scientists? And what would you, what advice, I know you touched on it a little bit, what, what advice would you give to those of us who have begun to second guess uh, real scientists or people who are actually dedicated towards uh, scientific inquiry uh, because of some bad actors? Okay. So you're asking if, if I've seen that same kind of mistrust of science among scientists. That was the first part of your question. Yeah, yes. So it's... Uh, Is there anyone in particular, possibly, that you've started to look at with a, through a different lens or... Well, so, you know, I guess the... It's not... I see it in my own department where people think people tend to think that scientists are sort of above politics, but in any human endeavor, there's politics. In my mm -hmm. own physics department, there's office politics as well. And there's the politically correct attitude that comes out in, in any place of work or place of business. At a major institution like Penn State, there's a general left-leaning attitude to say the least among the departments and so you know i i would say don't be fooled by the outward appearance of things where it seems that all scientists are a hegemon of you know of atheistic left-leaning tendencies here that that's the external appearance of the institution which is generally left-leaning you know there's uh, plenty of examples of scientists in different departments in different places who disagree with it, you know, kept quiet for a while, but after a while they spoke out only to discover that there were many other people in their own department who were similarly, you know, they disagreed with the politically correct view that was plastered all over the walls and, but they were just you know, sort of afraid to speak out. And that's like the, you know, the silent majority cliche there where there's very likely plenty of people who disagree with the uh, the way uh, science is being treated, you know, their own discipline is being treated. And you're, I think you're starting to see uh, more of those people speak out. I mean, there were, you know, for example, you mentioned the doctors who appeared on Joe Rogan's show, the uh, other doctors who I remember put out that I forget where they were from, but they were, they put out that video talking about what they saw in their own practice of how dangerous COVID was. And they were speaking just from their own empirical experience of this is what we saw with our patients. And they put that video out there, which ended up getting removed from YouTube because it went against the, the message. Um, but, you know, I, with the wonders of the internet, you know, <laughs> some yeah. of the good things that have come out of the internet is this ability for people to actually uh, speak out in ways they weren't able to before. So I, you know, I definitely see by the evidence that I see online that there are plenty of scientists who are uh, disagreeing with this because there's the same, uh, you know, the same political constitution among scientists that there are among the average crowd. It might be that there's a greater number of people left-leaning, but that's more like a selection bias kind of thing. You, you, know, you tend to select people more from your own group, especially if it's more like ideologically motivated. But there are still plenty of people in, uh, in scientific fields who uh, disagree with the hegemonic view of science with a capital S. Uh, and what was the other part of your question? Um. What would you say to, I guess, those average people who have begun to second guess, uh, in quotes, real scientists who are doing actual uh, research and inquiry uh, because of some, I guess, just a few bad actors in mm -hmm. rec more recent times? Well, you know, I would, I would say initially, don't abandon reason because you see people who are being unreasonable. You know, you can't, you know, I would, I, I, I hate this example in other arguments, but it's encouraging where it is useful here. And I say, you know, you use 
technology around you. You use your phone, you use electricity, you use your car. So clearly it's not like the people who are doing science are complete morons or complete idiot. They're individuals doing this discipline and they're producing things that seem to work. So you know, don't just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because you see some bad actors here. And you know, like I said, going back to the idea of reason, just because you see people being unreasonable does not mean you abandon your own reason and say, I'm just going to be, you know, uh, blindly accepting things, you know, without any reasonable considerations here. And, you know, perhaps it's, it's a good time to, you know, practice the virtue of prudence, of growing in wisdom and discernment, because, you know, you, you know, as with anything in life, there are a million voices vying for our attention. Yeah. And you know, knowing which ones to listen to is a difficult thing to do. It's something that we all grow in. And I would say, uh, you know, be open-minded enough to do a bit of exploring. You know, hear views that you disagree with. You know, go out there and, you know, I found... A wonderful, you know, I found the the wonderful people that I like to listen to, uh, you know, the wonderful authors and commentators that I like to read, by sort of going out there and exploring. You know, that's the again the wonderful thing about uh, YouTube and the internet is that all these voices there are available, and uh, you, know, you sort of you start with like a trustworthy source, a source that you know has uh, generally fared well. And you see, well, you know, well, who have they recommended? And you sort of jump to that person. And they say, well, who has this person recommended? And you jump to that person. And you, you sort of explore this network of people who are, you're starting from a good source and you're branching out to people that you might disagree with or you might not really understand what they're about, but you're, you're approaching it from a place of, an initial place of trust, which is an important thing. There are many, uh, there's, you know, I could say, for example, I purchased this book by, uh, um, and I'm going to read it, by this one atheist biologist, Alec Ro- Alex Rosenberg, which is called The Atheist's Guide to Reality, because it was recommended by this one Catholic scholastic philosopher that I read. And he, you know, I, I entirely disagree with the conclusions that he comes to, but the interesting thing about the book is that he draws many correct conclusions from his premises in this book much more clearly than other atheist philosophers have. And so, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily gone, uh, gone out to get this book on my own, not knowing anything about the content of it, but I'm, I'm starting from a place of someone that I trust, someone who's, you know, who's I've, I've been with for a while and have, understood them and they give that recommendation i suggest you check this out and i go oh i'll go check that out then and i see this and it's a deeply interesting thing and then of course that's you know jumps you onto all different kinds of people so you know bringing this all back the way i would recommend people navigate you know this world of a million voices all screaming at you is to you know you know at least one voice there that's trustworthy then ask that voice, you know, who do they recommend? And then you can gradually work your way out to, uh, you know, a, a broader understanding where you're inheriting their wisdom because they're saying, you know, I, I, you know, this is what I use to select from the voices around me. And then the next person says, well, this is what I use. So you're gradually building that skill. And eventually, you know, you, you get to the point where you have that level of expertise where you can navigate the world of a million voices on your own. So that's the that's the the general method I would suggest is start with someone you trust and go from there. Very good. Yeah, just gradually expanding your palette of mm-hmm. knowledge. I think that's a very good point. And then uh, going off of that, uh, I said a similar thing that in the age of uh, fact checking, Everyone seems to need a peer-reviewed study uh, to believe 
uh, objective reality. Uh, I gave an example in essence, in essence, masking causing psychological damage to young children. I said, what would you say to those of us who have found trouble talking about, quote, the science with people who clearly do not understand uh, inquiry, Mm -hmm. I I guess. Yeah, it's, well. This is where I feel like I have the most trouble in Mm -hmm. my, my day to day life, where something you believe is to be uh, true and it would make clear sense to someone uh, just looking at it from uh, a thousand feet in the air but mm-hmm. someone wants to know uh, well who told you that or where did you receive this uh, information some from so I feel right. like this is like with with the uh, transgender problem I say that a man cannot become a woman and someone on the left asked me for a peer-reviewed study mm-hmm. no it's just a fact that we know. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the important things is that this is one of those other consequences of scientism, you know, more generally, in that there's this <clears throat> conflation of metaphysical ideas and epistemological ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, metaphysical ideas are about things sort of as they are, as they really are, but epistemological means things as we know them. So they're pertaining to knowledge, uh, epistemic, it's, it's this root word, I believe it's Greek, you know, pertaining to knowledge. And so, you know, part of scientism's reduction of everything down to empirical scientific knowledge, we you know, tend to lose this distinction between things as they are and things as we know them and say, really, everything is just as we, you know, as we are able to know them. And so, someone might make a claim and then, you know, someone else responds to them and says, well, where's a, where's an empirical study that shows that? And you can respond that, well, the claim I was making was not an empirical claim. Mm. And so it's does not stand or fall necessarily, you know, for example, you know, you might, uh, you might be making an empirical claim, but let's say you're not making an empirical claim. You're making some claim and they say, you know, where's a peer peer reviewed empirical study. And you'll say, well, this isn't an empirical claim. So it doesn't stand or fall with empirical considerations. It stands or falls with a reasoned argument. You know, they're, uh, they're assuming and they're bringing an assumption into this, which is what it is. They're reading in the assumption that anything about transgenderism, for example, is something that has to be settled empirically, that there's nothing that someone can say philosophically about it, metaphysically about it, or even, you know, from the perspective of like the philosophy of nature, philosophy of science, outside of empirical considerations, you know, they, they can't say anything that's actually substantive on the matter. Well, that's scientism talking. Those are the assumptions that you're bringing into this, where you're saying that all truth and all knowledge is of this form. So, uh, you know, my, my gut reaction to people who respond in that way, where they say, you know, where's a peer reviewed study, I would say you're, you know, what you're doing is you're bringing in these assumptions that a this is how it is settled um, and b that the studies themselves are somehow freed from error in that way that there's you know like I said this neutral background where there aren't uh, philosophical considerations that go into it um, but also you know I would say on a on a more practical level, often the person who brings that up is really just being ad hoc in their argumentation. They're not necessarily responding to your claims. They're trying to sort of sidestep them by speaking around them and saying, well, unless you have a study that says this, I'm not even going to consider it. So it's almost like before you accept their premises and get into that argument, it's always good to just take a step back and say, well, what are they actually saying here? They're they're not even willing to consider what I'm saying unless they have this piece of paper that says this with this authoritative with, or with the stamp of this perceived authority on it. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. That, that's yeah. funny you said that, the stamp of approval of science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some, some institution that they hold to be infallible, which is interesting because they're also the ones who, you know, people of this type are also ones who, you know, 
vehemently disagree with ideas like papal infallibility, you know, the, the doctrine of that when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, or the idea of the church holding uh, teachings to be dogmatic or, you know, de fide teachings, they're very quick to respond to those and say, well, I disagree with that. I think that's ridiculous. When they themselves have this unquestioned dogmatic approach to you know, science with a capital S where, you know, there's no possible way I could offer any criticism of this because it just is so obvious that it's all true and it all works. And so, you know, you might have a correct idea, but you might be holding that correct idea for, you know, with, with you might accept that, bad, that, that correct idea with bad reasoning, or you might just, you know, you... You have this idea, it's a correct idea, but you don't know why it's correct. And so, you know, not saying that, uh, that scientific results per se are wrong, it's just that they're open to criticism like any idea. And, you know, something is only really beyond criticism when it's true, because if it's true, it survives all criticism. Not that it's somehow not allowed to be criticized. If an idea is true, then no criticism can stand because it just is true. And, you know, it's, if it's true, then you want to know for certain that it's true. And so you expose it to criticism and, you know, you, you see whether or not it, it survives the act of criticism, because if it doesn't, it means that there's some aspect of it that isn't true. And if we are honest with ourselves and we really want to be after truth here, we have to expose things to criticism. If it's true, it survives the criticism there and nothing can touch it because it's correct. It's true. Now, you know, not saying that that's an easy process, but that's the, that's the ideal. That's how we come to truth in that way. So it's yeah. a great answer. Yeah. I will definitely be using some of those tactics. Um, I think that's a good place to leave off unless Stephen has anything else. No, we're ending oh. with the truth. That's good. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on. I learned a ton and um, I really enjoyed listening to you. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.